Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 96. It's been a while since we've done an episode proper. There have been a series of mini-sodes, um, one of which, uh, the most recent of which, uh, we was uh, in which we kicked off our Best of Pictures mini-sode series, which will last from now until, I'm going to say the end of time, because that's, 80, that's 85, wow. That's 85 movies to talk about, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and it's all, But here's what I like about it. You can always depend on it. If there's ever a week when we don't really have a topic, there's going to be a movie, there's going to be a best picture to talk about. So uh, our most recent minisode, we talk about Ben Affleck's Argo. Um, and then uh, probably next week or the week after, we will be talking about The Artist and so on and so forth. So, and then they're actually, uh, the Oscars are coming up, so we'll be talking about uh, the 2013 Best Picture sometime in the near future. All right. So, as far as announcements, I think that is about it. Um, so, I'll go ahead and bring in my co-host, Josh Long. Josh. Hey there. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. All right. You know. Exciting. Yeah. Nothing's exciting as pretty good. Got to take what you can, when you can. Take the good, take the bad. Facts of life. Yeah. Hey, speaking of such things, oh, I don't know if we mentioned this on the show, but uh, Russell Johnson passed away. That is true. It's unfortunate. It's a sad, sad day. Yeah. Although he was my favorite character. He was. There. He was pretty good. Yeah, and he would have the. He would have these moments where he'd show up and do something totally unprofessor and it would be really funny. Um, like he's in a couple dream sequences where he plays mm. a character totally different than the professor. And that was always kind of enjoyable because he was such a straight man. I should explain to listeners that oh, yeah. uh, Russell Johnson played the professor on Gilligan's Island, which is Josh's favorite TV show of all time. <laughs> it's not do you, entirely let me ask you true. This. Okay. Before we get into the, uh, the episode. All right. Um, I guess I don't do this with movies, but with TV shows, I might. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if there's a TV show that I grew up with and, I, you know, I'd seen every episode of, as you have seen every episode I'm of Gilligan's Island. pretty sure I've seen all of it. I feel like I would say, even now, like, oh, well, that's one of my favorite TV shows because how could I not? Mm-hmm. There are better TV shows that I haven't seen at all. So, or maybe seen one or two episodes of. So clearly, I you know, clearly I like Wings more than Friday Night Lights. You know? Yeah. Um, but I don't know if that actually bears itself out. But uh, if you were to list some of your favorite TV shows, would you ever include Gilligan's Island? I, you'd probably include Get Smart. If Get I Smart, guess. I would. Yeah. Gilligan's Island, no, though. 
It's hard to say. <laughs> Cause I've seen a lot of Gilligan's Island and I, I think I'm just more fascinated with it as an, I like as an idea, mm-hmm. as an artifact of like television, I guess, mm-hmm. because it's so strange and there's something about it that's so specific and so recognizable. I don't know why. Like, well, it's like Hogan's Heroes to a certain extent. It's like yeah, you immediately know what so it is. So specific, yeah. And then these, but then in the midst of it, it's still a standard sitcom. Yeah, but they're weird archetypes too. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like you couldn't have this sitcom in like a Seinfeld type environment. You know, oh. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> it's like they took, because all, all sitcoms sort of, not all sitcoms, but a lot of sitcoms sort of take types and they just heighten them. They play them up more. But the types in Gilligan's Island are, are like, I mean, they're in the opening song, like the millionaire, the yeah. movie star. There's a character whose name is the professor. Yeah. Like the millionaire and his wife, you know their names. Right. But... Well, so Mr. Her, Mr. Her Mr. first Mr. name, uh, Hillary, Hillary Howell, Hillary Howell. I th- I think everything I've I've ever seen just says that her first name is actually Lovey. <laughs> That's what he calls her, and I don't know if they ever say her actual first name. Might as well be, yeah. So yeah, it's it's an odd, but that's the, what's his name Sherwood Schwartz. Yeah, the guy who created that. Yeah, he also did the Brady Bunch. The Brady Bunch, which is similarly like. You know, I feel like it's the same type of thing. People who love the Brady Bunch, nobody really like loves it because it was just a a high quality television show yeah. with great plots and dialogue, and it's not. And it's but it's not that it's camp either. Yeah, you know, there's something weird about it because I can understand it more if it was something that was just totally campy and people love it because that because it's ridiculous. Yeah, and neither Gilligan's Island or Brady Bunch are really that. They're a particular type, and they don't exist in reality, but they're not as far as camp, I don't think. And I don't think... Are there any modern equivalents of shows like that? Is there a modern equivalent of, like, a Gilligan's Island? I mean, one could make the argument that movies like... Sorry, that shows like, um, you know, Community or 30 Rock... Mm. uh, Though I think obviously they're, I think those are better written shows. Mm. You know, they don't take place in or Arrested Development. They don't take place in our reality. There are character yeah. types and archetypes, yeah, and that sort of thing. Um, but all those shows are very much more like self-referential. They're more self-aware. Yeah, you know, like Brady Brady Bunch is like a big dumb kid. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's like it's like Lenny it, from Of Mice and Men. Kind of, kind of like that's not a bad example because uh, or not a bad comparison because it nothing is nothing is very subtle everything's very obvious and uh, there's no nuance to it uh there's no real complications like all of the complications are things you've seen before or like what what are some of the conflicts in brady bunch like the one she gets hit in the nose with a football and she can't go to the dance like these are <laughs> I know Bobby once, uh, like overloaded the washer or something like that. <laughs> right. There's one where Bobby's voice is changing and he can't oh, is sing. That, or is that Peter's? Oh, it might be Peter. I Peter's can't the middle one. Maybe. I can't remember. Yeah. 
but anyway, and well, and it's kind of the same on Gilligan's Island. It's, it's almost always they're trying to get off the island and somebody shows up and doesn't help them get off the island. Yeah, it's worth noting that characters removed from civilization where they have to make life on their own and there's the potential to go to get back to civilization. It's worth noting that a show in which that is the week to week plot, uh, that despite that, this show still manages to have almost no stakes at all. Yeah. How much <laughs> of that show is actually about them having to survive in the wilderness? Almost none. It's like day one, they've all got their little huts. They've got the radio they can communicate with. Like they're trying to get back to civilization. Yeah. But they're never having to be like, how do we find food? Like, what do we do about our clothes? Like, how do we... How do we find shelter? I don't think there's ever an episode where they have to build yeah. those houses in their little village that they have. Man, oh man! <laughs> so fire, I know, I know you were, fire. That's I, like every other castaway type thing. That's the big thing. You got to have fire. I'm a big fan of Survivor, and watching them, watching you know a, a group of you know usually between six and and nine people um, build shelter make fire and all that. It's just such a, it's such a chore. And one of the things is, you know, you can't drink any water until you have fire because you have to be able to boil Boil the water. water, Right. So yeah, it, uh, unless of course you're this, uh, like 80 year old, uh, former Navy seal who's like, I'm just going to drink the water. And he just drinks. He's like, I drink worse water than this. (laughs) And he got, and he was fine by the way. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, so uh, now, Josh, you you were on the te- the podcast, the Televerse, yes. talking about get talking smart, about get smart. Okay, yes. I really think you you need to go on and talk about Gilligan's Island. <laughs> if they ever want to talk about Gilligan's Island, I, I would be okay with it because I feel like while it probably wouldn't be in one of my top shows of all time, it, it is fascinating in a lot of ways, and I feel like mm. I have a lot to say about it, and I think about it more often than seems to make sense. That's odd. I, I would make fun of that, but the other day I had a dream that I met my favorite survivor. So, hey, <laughs> and you know what? It was a really exciting dream. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, yeah, we have a friend named uh, Kyle Anderson who specializes and is kind of, one could make the argument, is uh, somewhat of an authority on Doctor Who. Mm. And uh, you're like you're like the Kyle Anderson of uh, <laughs> Gilligan's Island. Maybe so. What an unfortunate distinction. You know what? Uh, Russell Johnson also has the distinction of being a guest on the very first ever episode of Space Ghost Coast to Coast. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. I like that show. He and uh, I think it was he and Don Wells who played mm-hmm. Marianne were both on there. I assume she's still around, right? She's still alive and Tina Louise actually is still alive. I, okay. I thought that I thought Don Wells was the last one, but uh, no, both the, both the girls are still alive. Man, oh, man. Um Okay, well, that uh, wound up being an odd introduction to the episode. Uh, <laughs> Welcome, it w- everyone. It would appear that uh, it's like, hey, we don't have any announcements, so we're just going to say ridiculous things <laughs> for 10 minutes. What do you think? Um, all right, so let's. I'm just going to jump right into it. The movie that we are talking about this week is Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street. Now, if you have heard about this film or if you have seen it, you know that it contains a lot of content that uh, many people would call questionable, 
and many Christians would just call plain sinful. Um, so before we get into the film itself, one of the things that I wanted to address is why we even bothered seeing it. Um, there are a number of Christians who said that this is a film that no Christian should see. Uh, they did not view it as a function of personal conviction. They just said, if you are a Christian, you should not see this. It is wrong of you to see this. Um, I was on a message board, not a message board, sorry, I was in the comments section of a of an article about this film, and I uh, chimed in with my opinion, and I should not have. I regret that, uh, because I had forgotten to take off the... Uh, the uh, the notification for whenever somebody uh, responded and uh, people responded in a way that was very unfavorable to what I had to say and uh, it it didn't bother me that much I'm I'm much more accustomed to uh, Christians being upset at me for watching movies than uh, than than other uh, critiques that I might get but uh, more than anything I just was aware that like wow this one really seems to this one really seems to hit people a certain way. And there are movies this past year that one could make the argument are more explicit or more exploitative. But I think maybe because Wolf of Wall Street is a high-profile film. I mean, it was just nominated for a number of Oscars. Um, I think that's more on people's radar. And it's Martin Scorsese. So I think certain types of Christians like Josh and myself – feel like oh well let's we're going to go see that it's a Martin Scorsese film we're going to we're going to do that so i think there's maybe a bit more crossover uh than say blue is the warmest color or spring breakers or something like that so um so i wanted to just sort of address uh fairly quickly why we felt it was okay for us to see this and we did not see it together or anything but um josh i'll i'll jump to you first you saw Wolf of Wall Street. I sure did. Somewhat recently, correct? Uh, yeah, probably just a couple of weeks ago. Okay. Um, did you have any... By A okay, little bit of background. By the time I saw the film, because I didn't see it opening day, I saw it maybe a week or two later. Um, by the time I saw it, I mean, I it had a reputation. Reputation of lots of drug use, lots of simulated sex, lots of nudity. Um, that it had to be trimmed down. Uh, so that it would get an R rating instead of an NC-17, mm-hmm. but it was still very explicit. Mm-hmm. And so I, wa- I walked in, no, I made the choice to see the film, and I walked in knowing all of that. What about yourself? Uh, it was the same case for me, which I think, I think helps in a way. It's hard, to, it's hard to say, like, next time there's a film with a lot of objectionable content in it, make sure that you hear about it about its reputation first because then it won't be as uh, as shocking and you'll be more prepared um because i don't know how you would plan that although it, for some people it may be a very uh this may be a very good resource if you go on imdb there's a lot of times a film will have a like a breakdown a guide for for parents like they, they call it the parents guide but mm-hmm. of what's actually in there so that may actually be helpful to some for some people to know what kind of content you're going in to look at yeah so i don't know for some of you that may be a, a positive resource but um i think and you the case may be the same with you i was expecting something that people had found controversial 
and going in knowing that it wasn't as bad as I expected. Yes, I was really preparing myself for not necessarily the worst. I know I've seen worse, but like um, I really walked in saying like, all right, here we like, uh, like I was really like emotionally prepared for it. And then it wound up being, it's not tame or anything like that, but it wound up not being at all as bad as I thought it was going to be. But I know that for some it, it is, it's, it is plenty bad. And so, and there is a lot of nudity and there's a lot of drug use. And I believe it has set the new record for a number of F words in a film. You know, I had heard that and I had forgotten it. And then about halfway through the movie, I was like, Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, now here's the thing. It has that record, but mm-hmm. it is also notably a very long film. Yeah. You know, well, there's different records. There's one of like, there's ones for sheer number of uses. Mm-hmm. And then there's ones for, uh, uses within like per minute. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair um, enough. because I think already this might've changed since I remembered hearing that statistic, but I think casino for a while was the number one. And that's another one that's a Martin Scorsese film around three hours long. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I have to assume that he and like a Tarantino, uh, maybe someone like a David Mamet or something like that. Mm. That'll between those three, you'll probably round out the top ten. I think. Yeah. Um, but uh, probably others that I am not thinking of right now. But um, so yeah, so so you knew all this going in, mm-hmm. and you knew the context of it to a certain extent, mm-hmm. and you had emotionally prepared for it. But my question to you is, why? You know, why did you see it? Yeah. Um, well, again, I, I think, feel like we've been bringing this up a lot recently, uh, in terms of what we just think about in general about content in movies. There's a whole, do we have a whole episode on that or is it a mini-sode? Uh, a whole episode. It's a full episode. So if, if you want to get a more in-depth, um, perspective on how we feel about that, that episode is available. Um, but to try and distill it as much as I can, first of all, the as a 30-year-old, I don't think I'm impressionable enough that I need to worry about drug use and, uh, and language affecting mm-hmm. me personally and the way that I go out and act. Like <laughs> I'm always surprised that when they talk about drug use in movies and how... Um, I don't know. It it almost, there aren't that many movies that show drug use in a positive light. I think we maybe even said this in the, in the episode we talked about this before, like very, very rarely. I think is that the case. And there's certainly nothing about Wolf of Wall Street that makes any of those drugs look positive to me anyway. Like maybe there's a person who watches that film and is like, you know what? I should start doing cocaine. Um, I would venture to say that that person has enough problems already and those are not caused by the film. Um, but, uh, so that sort of thing does, I don't worry at all about that going into a film. The language again, like I said, doesn't bother me. Um, uh, now since it, since I knew going into it, there was a whole lot of, well, part of the controversy was about there being a lot of sexual content. Um, and that's something I, I generally try to be careful about because 
again, I think we talked about this in the episode, but in the other episode, but in watching nudity, you are actually kind of involved in that personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that element of it. Um, so I just, I went in mentally prepared, which I think was good. Um, but also the, I felt like it was important to see the film because of the way that people were talking about it. Um, especially because you and I are both people who are, who work in the entertainment industry and specifically in talking about films. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a conversation to be part of, and I think it's important to know about that in order to be part of that conversation. Um, uh, because the, everything I was hearing about it honestly made me kind of want to see it more because it was so <laughs> controversial. Uh, not just, not just to kind of buck the system, yeah, but uh, more because the response that everyone seemed to be ha- having to it was almost an anger that it was glorifying these things. Yeah. And, and knowing what the true story is and knowing who Martin, Martin Scorsese is, I knew that that could not actually be the intent of the film. Yeah. I'll, I'll jump, I'll jump in here and say that, uh, yeah, there, you know, just because a movie is well respected or well regarded, um, that doesn't necessarily mean I will always see it. I, I will often see it, but not always. And so for example, there was a movie this year. I won't, I won't say what it is. I won't go into it, but like, there was an NC 17 movie this year that had a lot of sexual content and it also, it was by a filmmaker I'm not familiar with. And there are a lot of people, including uh, maybe the, the, the actors themselves who said, but also people that really like and defend the movie also said like the sexuality seemed a little exploitative. And so I opted not to see that. Um, But Martin Scorsese is a filmmaker that I trust. I think he's a sensitive, intelligent filmmaker who tells stories of deeply flawed people. Um, and I think he, it's very, he, I think he's, we can get more into this a little bit later, but I think there's a deep moralism to his filmmaking. I think he condemns actions. I think he condemn, condemns behavior, uh, certain attitudes, certain philosophies. I don't know if he ever condemns a person. I think he recognizes that like anybody can be this in the right circumstances, but I think, uh, you know, and we'll, again, we'll talk more about this a little bit later, but like it astounds me that anybody could watch Wolf of Wall Street and think it glorifies this behavior because, you know, I don't know anybody that comes out of that movie and says, I want to be like him. And if you, if a movie is glorifying behavior, then you come out wanting to engage in that behavior. And I can't, I can't think of anybody and I don't know of anybody. I haven't heard cause I've read a fair amount about people's response to the film. I haven't heard of anybody wanting to be this character. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I wanted to be certainly part of the conversation like you were talking about, but also I felt like, as I often feel with Martin Scorsese, I felt like I was in good hands and I'm not, I don't love everything he makes, but I, but I trust him as an artist. Um, so that's why I was okay with seeing it. Um, but I do want to say this really quick. Uh, there was a whole sermon, uh, about this, um, 
that I posted on the website. I'll post a link to it in the show notes. Um, and it's about Romans 14 verses one through three. And this basically talks about personal convictions. As I have said on the show, I have problems with like lust and porn. And one could make the argument that I should not have seen this film. Um, and there's an argument to be made about that. Certainly oddly enough, the, the nudity in the film has not stayed with me. Um, although it should be noted that I actually did, uh, throw my eyes into the corner of the theater once or twice. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so, but if you are somebody, if you are a Christian who has a problem with that and even the slightest hint of something will really, it'll stay in your mind. It's gonna, it's gonna be in there a while and you opt not to see this film. Uh, that's fine. Um, I'm not, uh, I don't want to shame you and I don't think any other Christian should, uh, but the flip side of that is I don't think I should be shamed either uh, or Josh. And so uh, this is Romans 14, 14 verses 1 through 3. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So this is a function of of personal conviction. And obviously in, in the Bible, there are some things that are not a function of conviction. It's just, it's very black and white, but there are some things that are. And I think the films that we see, uh, <laughs> I'll say the films that we see as opposed to, for example, porn, which is not something that is inherently artistic. Um, uh, I think that comes down to a matter of conviction. So if you are listening to this and you know somebody who went to see Wolf of Wall Street and you don't think they should have, or at least you don't think you should have, and you want to extend that to them, I would acknowledge, I would suggest you not do that. Vice versa, if you're somebody who saw this film, but you know somebody who for who does not want to see it for their own personal reasons, uh, don't make him feel bad about it. Don't make him feel uh, stupid or narrow or small. Like this is how we live together, and everybody has their own. Everybody has their own uh, struggles and that kind of thing. So, uh, I just wanted to put that out there, and uh, we will now move on. So, for those that haven't seen it, uh, I'm not sure necessarily why you're listening to this, but I guess this will not necessarily be a spoiler filled episode just because it's not a spoiler type of movie, but, uh, I'll do a quick, uh, I'll read this quick sum, uh, summary. Uh, the Wolf of Wall Street is the story of Jordan Belfort who turned the sale of simple penny stocks into a multi-million dollar business, breaking numerous laws in the process. Over the course of the film, Belfort becomes embroiled in drug use, sexual promiscuity, and general excess. So, um, it's a very, it's actually a pretty simple plot. Um, yeah. and one that if you are familiar with Scorsese, it will sound familiar to you, mm-hmm. um, because it's a lot like Goodfellas. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it like structurally, even, even the end, like the note that it ends on, um, reminded me of, of Goodfellas. And I'm certainly not the first one to make the comparison. Yeah. But, um, and I, th- I think that's one of the things that's interesting about it is that it's almost as if Scorsese is using the film to make the comparison. I think that's part of the point is that yeah. these guys are kind of 
gangsters without being gangsters. It's yeah. the same type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and so like already just in talking about the basic format, uh, and the, and the self-referential, um, thing that, uh, that Scorsese is going for, like already, I feel like we're getting into the kind of filmmaker that he is like the kind of sensitivity and thought that he puts into his films. But, um, but more about that later. First off, I guess we'll just go with uh, general uh, first impressions. Uh, Josh, what did you think, just in general, of The Wolf of Wall Street? In general, I enjoyed it. Um, I think uh, it, it was a – it was kind of a – I assume people have said this. It's kind of a return to form, it felt, for Scorsese for me. Um, I haven't – I've enjoyed several of his last few movies, but they haven't – they haven't had that same bite, you know. They haven't had that yeah. same edge that some of his stuff from, I mean, certainly his things from his work from the seventies, but uh, even of a, a Goodfellas or, mm-hmm. or something like that. And this this had that. It felt, it felt edgy. It felt kind of, it had a vitality to it, um, and kind of this. A lot of his favorite movies of mine are these characters who are just seemingly on a downward spiral and don't even realize it. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the type of character that this guy is. And he's probably the most privileged or, or wealthy of any of these type of characters that, that Scorsese deals with these characters that are just... Yeah, undoubtedly. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that, that was very interesting. Um, yeah, I liked, I liked a lot of the performances. Um, I had some misgivings about the, the, uh, narration. Hmm. There were moments when I, it felt like it might be too much. Um, so I don't know that would, that was a small thing that I didn't love. And then there, there's a weird sense where I, I can't tell. I guess maybe a sense that I can't entirely tell what the film wants us to come away thinking. If that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, there, there is, and possibly that's because the movie's based on a book by the actual guy. And yeah. and he is a real person who I'm sure at some level, if it's based on his book, at some level he has to approve approve it. They can't just take it away from him and present him however they like. Oh, if I had to guess, I would assume that if they presented him with enough money, uh, he'd, <laughs> he'd be okay be fine. with it. Um, and <laughs> hey, maybe that's the case. But I- And you know, actually, real quick, I do want to say this uh, because I said it um, with our Eat, Pray, Love episode. Um, both Wolf of Wall Street and the companion film, both are, you know, based on true stories. They have to deal with the, like over the top personalities of real people. Um, so as we talk about Jordan Belfort, now he is chronicled as being in many ways, a terrible person who did terrible things and, and all that kind of thing. But, um, but that's the thing. So, uh, when we talk about Jordan Belfort, we're talking about talking about him in the film. And when we talk about uh, the companion film, we'll, we'll do that as well. So, um, and in some cases, like I, I don't want to, uh, I don't necessarily like speaking, uh, overly ill of the dead. 
um, which will come into play a little bit later. But uh, but yeah, I wanted to specify we're talking about Jordan Belfort in the film, which is based on his autobiography. But then so was uh, so was uh, Eat, Pray, Love. So yeah. I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. No, that's okay. Um, I think I was just saying I'm I'm not. I have a sense that the film doesn't have. 100% freedom to present the character the way they want to, um, the way Scorsese might want to, hmm. which I, I guess I go a little bit back and forth on whether or not that's even a problem because if the film forces there, sorry, if the circumstances force the filmmaker to humanize this character a little bit more, I think that's more interesting. Yeah. Um, you can't just paint him as a terrible wall street, you know, rich guy jerk. Yeah. Um, there has to be some kind of, you have to try and humanize him because, because <laughs> the author wouldn't let you otherwise. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't make him look good. Yeah. I feel like they, pre- I think, I feel like Scorsese presented the character he wanted to present no matter what. I mean, like they humanize him as much as is possible, hmm. but to, to the mean, point he's not a people, good guy. Yeah. To the point that some people have complained that they make him into too good of a person. Like I've heard, criticisms of of the film that they humanize him too much all right so i guess we'll jump into this already um the idea of glamorizing uh behavior and glamorizing a character and that kind of thing um because i've heard i've heard people say that the that certainly that it doesn't necessarily make him sympathetic but that it makes him too too nice or too charismatic or too whatever and that it that the film kind of endorses his behavior in some way. I feel like anybody saying that the film makes him too charismatic. That's a, I think that's a stupid. Art. Yeah. Like that's a stupid problem with it because he certainly was very, is very charismatic. Like that's the reason that, that all this stuff was able to happen in the first place. That's the reason that he has a book deal. Even that, that's yeah. the reason that he continued after a super negative article about him came out. He became bigger after that. Yeah. That's the reason that he, he wrote this book and that's the reason that he still now today is a motivational speaker. Yeah. Is so, he, is he a motivational speaker? Well, <laughs> or is he just on the lecture circuit? <laughs> He's some kind of speaker. Yeah. But, um, the, but to, to have a problem with him looking charismatic in the film is yeah. is dumb. And that's the thing is I feel like that's it's the right choice because we need to see this character as he is. I recognize that we need that you know his behavior is worthy of condemnation, but we need to see what other people saw. We need to understand how this was possible. It was possible because he was a charismatic dynamic person. Um but that's the thing is Okay, so there's all right, I'm we're uh, spoilers, whatever. Uh, we're going to talk about it as if you've seen it. Um, there's a scene in which he punches his wife in the stomach in front of his daughter. Yeah. Or is it his son? Daughter. Daughter. Um, now, admittedly, that is only, that's only one scene and it comes fairly late in the film, but that's the kind of scene. And by the way, there's almost no style to the way that scene is shot. Yeah. Cold, hard reality punch in the stomach in front of his daughter tries to take his daughter away from his wife uh gets while he's high on cocaine yeah no question um that sequence though it comes late that's the that is i i would venture to say is a game changer let's say you're a hundred percent on board with this guy up to that moment (laughs) you probably aren't but let's say you are you get to that and you're like never mind i was wrong 
mm-hmm. this it, like if everything it, it becomes retroactive if everything that this guy did that i liked led him to this then there must be something wrong with it mm-hmm. um and so like a film like the film is not like, any film that incorporates that scene and shoots it the way it is is not a film that condones this man yeah and his behavior yeah and does not glamorize it right like i just i don't see how people can think that no i don't think so i mean if you that's that's a criticism that seems like it was made by people who only saw the trailer to the movie uh possibly and it, um, you know what's it's a fun trailer well yeah i'll say that and that uh, i don't know maybe that's possible and this goes a little bit back to what you were talking about too, about him being charismatic. I feel like one of the strengths of the film is that it can both have a moment like you just mentioned, where he is clearly acting very terribly. Yeah. Um, but there's also a scene and for some reason, this one's one of my favorite scenes in the mo- in the movie. There's a scene where he's kind of rallying the troops. There's several scenes where he speaks to all the, to, uh, all of the, um, employees there uh, but there's one where it's looking like maybe he's not going to be in charge of the company anymore yeah and he starts telling the story about uh one of the the women who works there who's been one of the women there longer than anybody else yeah um one of the employees there longer than anybody else i should say and there's this very kind of tearful heartfelt moment where he talks about uh, what she was going through when she started with the company. Yeah. Single and what, mother, I think. That, yeah. Yeah. She needed like money to pay medical bills for her kids or something like that. Yeah. Um, and he, what is it? I, I think it's she the, needed like five grand and he gave her 10 or something right. like that. He like just, re- she, she was coming to him just hoping to get a job and he gave her a job and wrote her an exorbitant check to take care of everything. And she gets really choked up and talking about this. Yeah. And that was so interesting to me to have a scene like that in this movie where we're clearly showing a guy who, uh, is who takes advantage of other people and, uh, uses money to just get whatever he wants you know, uses money for, for, yeah. uh, uh, selfish pleasures. And yet that moment exists. It does. And I think, and that's the thing is it's, it's, it's so, and the inclusion of it is so complex because yeah. like you don't include that if you want, if you want us to just straight up hate this guy and think he's an absolute monster because even monsters have moments of compassion and sympathy for other people. But here's something I realized in true Charles Foster Kane form, <laughs> this story involves what? It involves him giving money. Well, he's got a lot of money. Mm-hmm. He throws money away. Mm-hmm. So what it like, it costs him virtually nothing mm. to help out this woman. And in doing so, I don't, I, I, certainly, I'm sure what he thought, I'm sure he thought he was doing a nice thing. And indeed he was. But if it, if he was actually asked to do anything that required anything of himself, anything mm. real, Anything that would have been remotely self-sacrificial might have been a different story, Hmm. but that's the, and that's the thing is like, but he gave her money and certainly changed her life. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's the kind of thing that he, but you also wonder, is that the kind of thing he latches on 
and say, well, I did this. Right. To tell himself that he's a good person. That he's a good person. You know? Or or are there lots of examples like that? And maybe there are lots of people who might yeah. say that he changed their lives for the better. Clearly, he has this whole group of people, you know, this this company that loves him, that, mm-hmm. that practically worships him. Yeah. So it is I, worth noting, though, that later on when uh, employees are being arrested based on his testimony, she's one of them. Yeah, that's right. She is. So, you know, goes the other way too. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, in that moment, it's such a, oh, and that's the, it's the brilliant, it's the brilliance of the screenplay. It's the brilliance of the director. It's end uh, of, of the actors. I don't, I don't remember who it is that plays the woman, but DiCaprio in that moment, like mm-hmm. not playing up irony, not winking at the audience, like playing it straight that this is something he's really emotional about. And it's just in a movie that, in many ways is like as obviously condemning of this guy as possible. Little moments like that are like, Oh, this makes it harder to, this makes it harder to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and it's just, and that's one of the things that I like. That's one of the things that I love about it is choices like including that scene, including the scene, you know, with the punch to the stomach, mm. including little moments of actual emotional and physical reality in the midst of this ridiculous outlandish over the top comedy, um, uh, in which people just act like monsters. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, from, uh, so what, else, uh, did you have any other like major responses to it that you can think of? Um, I, I, I can now not remembering what I've said in, in the podcast already, but, I, I think it was interesting how I, I I did start to say how there are similar, we talked about similarities to Goodfellas Mm -hmm. and how I think he does that on purpose because this is like, uh, these characters kind of do the same things, but they're much higher profile. They are not at the same level of risk usually. Right. Um, and I guess to sort of say that in a lot of ways, corporate America gets away with this thing. Maybe not corporate America. That that, that might be no. uh, overstating it. But that – I guess the rich yeah. are able to get away with these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if – I'm trying to remember the Scorsese films that I've seen now. And I'm trying to think if there's ever sort of the level of betrayal – that ultimately happens at the end of this film. I I wonder if he's making kind of a point in this one that these people also have no qualms even against each other. Like within the the gangster world, within the sort of mafia world, there's usually a sense of loyalty at least. Yeah. And when people do double cross each other, it's you know like those are the worst people. Yeah. Um. Whereas in this one, it's kind of like everyone sort of double crosses everyone if they think that it'll get them something. Yeah. Um, Uh, And one in particular that really is an obvious stinging betrayal. Yeah. And there is, there is one moment um, like a montage of Jordan or Jordan's guys like being interrogated and they're all very closed mouth. It it very much feels like a mob sequence of guys just like buttoning their lips and they're not saying anything and all Mm -hmm. that. But you know, that scene only makes his eventual betrayal of them more 
poignant and more frustrating. Um, but yeah, you do get the impression that everyone would probably roll on everybody else yeah. if push came to shove. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, I do think I comparing, you know, comparing, uh, Goodfellas specifically to this film and looking at how the films end, it ends with a character kind of selling out the people that he ostensibly cares about and helped him get where he is. Uh, and then the consequences of that are different, but in some ways they are similar. Like when you see like the, the emotional note that they end on, which is basically these two characters are both so very bored mm-hmm. with the lives that they have now. And they, yeah. they would rather be doing the thing that they did before, which kind of implies they've learned nothing. Yeah. And both of them, if you think about it, both films kind of start with a similar voiceover. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly the same, but uh, Goodfellas is, as long as I could remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. So yeah. it's talking about, what he wanted in life. Right. And then Wolf of Wall Street talks with him, begins with him talking about that when he was 26 years old. Isn't it, isn't that the one when I was 26 years old, I made however many million dollars, which pissed yeah. me off because it was four short of like 10 million a week or something. Yeah. I, I can't remember the, the million a week. I think it's what yeah. it was. Um, but that in the same way is saying, this is what I wanted to be. Like I wanted to make a ton, a ton, a ton of money. Yeah. Um, and then that's what the movie is about him doing just that in the same way that Goodfellas is about. I do Henry think Hill becoming a gangster. I do think something that, that does bother me about the film, because by and large, I do like it a great deal. Um, I, I felt the length from time to time, but not, not in a way that necessarily bothered me. Um, it was repetitive in a way that I think it was supposed to be when you realize just that this man has set up his life to just be one thing, one party after another. Um, but, uh, but one thing that I think got me was, in all of its two hours, you know, I think it's two and a half hours long, maybe even longer, 245 perhaps. It's just about three. Okay. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. In all of its three hours, there's really no scene of transition, not even one scene of transition between being a idealistic person who's kind of, who kind of wants to do the right thing to not being. Yeah. There is a scene in which early on he's new to his firm and he has lunch with Matthew McConaughey and McConaughey extols the 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 virtues of of uh being you know deceitful and just being very cutthroat and that kind of thing and And drugs what was that and drugs and drugs and and other things um but like and in the next scene jordan's doing all of that and Mm -hmm. it's just like i feel like there needs to be a scene in in between and Mm -hmm. maybe that's i don't know like yeah, because I want to see some transition. I want to see maybe a little bit of conflict. Once he is this is that character, like once he becomes Jordan Belfort, really, yeah. he is uh, like he's this powerhouse and he's very defined and he's clear. But before that, it's almost as if he's nobody. You know, when he shows up in those earlier scenes, he's kind of a blank slate almost. Yeah, and it's it's hard to reconcile why it is that he becomes that thing. Yeah, exactly. Is there something, is there some level of him where he's that already and just hasn't learned to, to fully become that? Yeah. Or what? I, I I don't know. Yeah. And I feel like that's, I don't know. I feel like the film was so eager to get into the, the debauchery of the character hmm. and the excess and all that kind of thing that I think it, it missed an opportunity to explore something 
genuinely genuinely complex like how do you arrive at this place like you can't i feel like very few people start at i mean certainly people want to make a lot of money that i get but i don't think by and large anybody would say i want to make a lot of money and do a whole lot of drugs and do this and this and this mm-hmm. like i don't know and and i don't think that's his goal early on either he wants to be a success and that seems to be it and then mm-hmm all this other stuff comes along with it and he's willing to go with it, but we don't see the scene of him realizing, Oh, this is part of it. Um, and then making that choice. So, uh, that's, that's a criticism. Um, and it does sort of make it, make the character somewhat arcless. Um, which can be, can be frustrating. It keeps me from a hundred percent, embracing the, the character, but at the same time, well, I mean, you don't, I don't embrace the character, but, right. uh, but I'm not a hundred percent invested in him, uh, mm-hmm. the way I am in like other Scorsese films, like a Goodfellas or Raging Bull or something yeah. like that. But then in the same way, how much would that character ever really change? You know? Yeah. He never, and, and maybe that's part of the film's point is that he doesn't really have to learn a lesson. Yeah. Like things happen to him that, you know, bad things happen, but there are things like he loses his, you know, $10 million house or whatever. Um, or, you know, there's a lot of things that his life's not as great as it used to be, but uh, none of it's ever bad enough for him to think, should I have made these choices? Right. I mean, he does lose his wife, which is somebody that he, really cared about i mean we do see enough of their like courtship that we see that he actually does care about her and he wants to be with her for whatever reason Mm. um not so much that he doesn't cheat on her of course but Mm -hmm. uh but he does lose her and that's a that's a big deal but at the same by that time he's so entitled he feels like he is owed so much that he's incredulous that what how could you leave me why would you leave me you know and just like well obviously because of everything you've done (laughs) but like to him it just doesn't make sense somebody is doing something against me and you know and it's and i think there you know there's an argument to be made what is it um this is a fairly recent thing that a rich kid got in like a car accident like he was drunk driving or something like that and he got in a car accident and there was a uh and his lawyer argued that he had, uh, oh man, now I don't remember exactly what it is, but that basically, uh, that his privilege created in him a sort of mental illness to yeah, the extent, to the extent that, that, uh, that his privilege made it so that he did not understand consequences, did not understand that his actions had consequences. And so I think the case, and I think that like the judge bought into it and stuff. And I think the case wound up being dismissed and just like, yeah, that'll that'll sure take care of that that illness that'll teach him that there are consequences (laughs) yeah so i think it was something like that um and i and i do think you know um regardless of what i might think politically i do think that like you know uh when you have a lot going for you and that could look in a lot of that could look a lot of different ways you know uh it could be the amount of money you have, it could be the type of job you have, it could be, you know, being married or, or whatever, anything you have that maybe somebody else doesn't, um, 
you can eventually feel kind of entitled to that if you're not careful and you can kind of take it for granted um, mm-hmm. to the point where you just are incapable of, I don't know, you're incapable of imagining what life would be without it um, and just, and thus are unable to really, I think, learn anything or gain, or at the very least gain any, gain any kind of perspective on life. And I feel like that's something that happens uh, to the character over the course of the film. Um, so we'll move on into, uh, just a couple of, couple of quick things. Um, from a technical standpoint, I think it's wonderfully shot. I think it's brilliantly edited. Uh, you mentioned the vitality, Mm -hmm. which is something that, I mean, Scorsese is getting up in years. Yeah. Like if you look at his movies over the last 10 years, you see stuff like that, that still has a vitality to it. Stuff like the aviator and the departed, um, but the aviator seems like kind of a more chilled out kind of movie mm-hmm. departed is kind of his, his thing. But then, but then his last major movie was Hugo, yeah, you know, which was nostalgic. And it seemed like the work of an old man old who softy. was, who was thinking back on his love of film and that kind of thing. And, yeah. and in the process totally forgot to, uh, make sure the script was good, but, um, sorry, I'm not a fan of Hugo, but, um, I seen it. what was that? haven't seen it i'm in the minority on this one uh it's a i won't get into it so um so he seemed like a filmmaker who could not like you said who had sort of lost the edge that he had with raging bull and goodfellas and last temptation of christ and that kind of thing um and you see this and i know he's and you know he's working with the editor he always works with Mm -hmm. and so you can't put all of it on her it's the two of them deciding this is the way this movie gets put together mm. and it does not seem like the type of movie that a i mean he's in his 70s at this point that a 70 something year old filmmaker would make it seems yeah. like a tarantino film in some yeah. ways it seems young and vivacious and all that kind of thing and it just you know like i said from time to time i felt the length but not to the extent that you could with a three-hour film yeah um so uh so i really respond to a lot of and as always i love its use of music i think scorsese uses music really well um the uh but real quick before we uh move into the uh, companion film and such uh i do want to talk about the acting i think the acting is uniformly wonderful uh dicaprio in the last couple of years has had a weird little renaissance and has been asked to do things he's never done before uh, I just mentioned Tarantino. He was, I think, amazing in Django Unchained. I haven't seen Great Gatsby, but I hear he's quite good in it. Um, partially by embracing the the charm that he had in his younger years. But then in this, I don't think of, Scor- uh, of DiCaprio as a comedic actor. But he shows such sharp comedic instincts, even to the extent... Uh, even to the point of uh, engaging in some ridiculous physical comedy mm-hmm. that I thought was hilarious. And it's just, I mean, he, it's, it's weird. It's not merely that he and Scorsese work well together. They clearly, they clearly do, but, but DiCaprio really seemed to lock into this character and lock into this movie in ways. Yeah. Like, I get it. There was something about this one that he really, I don't know. They're, watching some of those scenes where he's talking to them all on the microphone, talking to the troops. It's amazing. Yeah. 
It, it's as if he is possessed by something else. It really is. I mean, it's because those scenes go on for a while and the amount of intensity he has to keep going, the, he has to maintain is just astounding. But he does. He finds the he finds what's inside the character, which undoubtedly is a lot of drugs, um, <laughs> but also just ego and just clearly yeah. is a guy who likes being in front of people yeah um and that kind of thing and it's just and those things are electric it's an electric performance mm-hmm. um however not to be outdone you got jonah hill in there now this is going to sound weird to say about somebody who already is doing perfectly fine for himself, but I'm very happy for Jonah Hill. <laughs> I'm very happy for the direction his career has taken. He is now mm-hmm. a two time Oscar nominee. Yeah. Which I'm sure if you were, uh, I thought he was great and super bad, mm-hmm. but I'm sure if you were to watch the 40 year old virgin, which at this point is almost nine years old. Mm. Um, if you were to watch the 40 year old virgin, you see him in one scene talking with Catherine Keener. Uh, I'm sure you would not think that that guy would go on to more than hold his own in a DiCaprio, in a Scorsese movie opposite Leonardo DiCaprio or opposite Brad Pitt or something like that. And that he would be a two time Oscar nominee and just be, as he gets into his like thirties and stuff, challenging himself over and over again. Like it, it was looking like Moneyball was a bit of a fluke and then, you know, he went back, he did 21 Jump Street, he did The Sitter, he did This Is The End. And now this, where he's he's kind of utilizing his comedic persona, mm-hmm. but, you know, he's layering on an accent that's consistent yeah. and, and believable. And he has to do, I mean, he really is, in many ways, we're talking about Goodfellas, uh, he really is the Joe Pesci the Joe type Pesci character, character yeah. which is a hard character to play. Yeah. Uh, and I think he hits it out of the park. What did you think? <laughs> yeah, I think so too. There, there's this weird, uh, total lack of self-awareness of that character <laughs> that <laughs> makes him fascinating from everything to like, he doesn't totally understand that it's weird that he's married to his cousin. Like, yeah, he knows that people think it's weird, but he doesn't understand why, yeah. why it's that weird. Um, or like, the level to which he gets into the drugs um, and kind of the, the uh, I guess the throwing caution to the wind Yeah, that he, there's a point. Well, I guess this is kind of spoilers too. I won't say too much, but there's a point when they're doing so much of a certain drug that I'm like, that character, he's going to die. Like, yeah, there's I, no question. I was sure he was going to die. Um, and it was like, I'm being able to see that from the outside. So what, what what's he thinking when he's taking more and more and more yeah. like, uh, and I'll say this, and this goes for both DiCaprio and, and uh, Jonah Hill, but I think especially Jonah Hill, the total commitment, which also means a total lack of self-consciousness. Like he needs to throw himself in. He knows he's going to look ugly He's going to look animalistic. He's going to look just ridiculous. Like there is no, there is no vanity to be found <laughs> in the performances in this film. Yeah. By anybody. Yeah. Um, you know, and I guess that's maybe more of a, uh, you know, more of a compliment to 
DiCaprio because, frankly, when you're Jonah Hill, who is a character actor who does comedy, who's primarily known for comedy and particularly foul mouth comedy, like, yeah, you kind of have to learn to shed any kind of self-consciousness. But for, for a leading man like DiCaprio, um, who's a, like a good-looking guy and, and you know, there's the guy from Titanic. This is the guy who was, you know, who played Gatsby in The Great mm-hmm. Gatsby. Like, he can play those parts and be dashing and all that kind of thing. But in this, he's choosing not to be and and there is no like – there is no, okay, well, do I still look okay? Hmm. There's none of that. <laughs> um, and so I have such admiration for everybody in the cast. I think everyone does a great job. Um, but, uh, but those two especially. Um, and I'm very excited that, that uh, Jonah Hill, who took a significant pay cut to be in the film, hmm. he was paid $60,000 to be in the movie. Hmm. Um, I'm excited to see where his career goes. And frankly, I'm excited for DiCaprio as well. Like, yeah. I mean, he has shown that he can be, I, I mean, I knew he was a good actor before, but like, I did not know he was capable of the things that he's done in the last couple of movies I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really impressive. So, and then there's a few, uh, I was just going to mention two that surprised me that were in it, uh, that I didn't know that were in it and gave great performances were Rob Reiner, who mm-hmm. plays Jordan Belfort's dad. And uh, Jean Dujardin, cause I, I just think he's awesome. Every time he comes on screen and something and I don't know he's in it, I'm like, Oh, it's him. <laughs> like excited somehow. Oh man, stay tuned um, for this the next mini soda. Yeah, apparently. I know. He's he's pretty cool. Um yeah, and that's and and it is this is a movie where like, you know, uh, notable actors show up in in fairly small roles and always yeah. do a great job and yeah, Jean Dujardin like just <laughs> is clearly having a lot of fun and he does have the kind of smile that's just like I know I'm the worst person in the room, but you can't help but love me. Isn't it wonderful? Um, There's a great scene, too, where he's he's angry and he's trying to speak in English, but English is clearly not his first language. And so whatever he's trying to say is not coming across and it'll be like some of it's in English and some of it's in French. Yeah. That was a really funny scene. Yeah. It's... uh... And Rob Reiner was a lot of fun, too. Like, it's just... Although... And that... And as much as I enjoy his character, this this also goes to just some of my frustration with not giving Jordan a lot of, you know, backstory. Like, you know, this is the father that he has, like this blustery, over-the-top, insane man. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the film is not interested in exploring how this man could create this other man. Yeah, it doesn't go a whole lot into their relationship. It's kind of just there. Yeah. Is it interesting that Meat Meathead has become Archie Bunker? that's very funny um yeah it's uh so i feel like i feel like we should move into the companion film uh which is all right um here we go (laughs) listeners i want to take you back i want to take you back 16 years to when i tyler smith was 16 years old so if you're doing your math you know that i'm almost 32 um, which sounds old to me, but moving on, uh, if you want to send me any presents or anything, there's a PO box over battleship retention, just right to take care of Tyler Smith. Anyway. Um, so I was 16 years old and I just, I was really getting into movies at that point. Like 14 is when I started watching stuff, uh, like on video 
15 is when I started wanting to see things in the theater. 16 is when I was seeing stuff in the theater that I would, that my friends were not. And there was a movie that I went and saw on the day it opened with my dad because I really wanted to see it. And it was called Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And it was directed by Terry Gilliam. <laughs> I'm laughing already because it's in, it's insane that I did that, that I saw that movie with my dad. It should be noted that he that when we got home and my mom asked, uh, Kevin, how was the movie? He said what a number of people have said about Wolf of Wall Street. He said, I feel like I need to take a shower. Um, <laughs> because uh, for those that don't know, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is the adaptation of the Hunter S. Thompson book of the same name. And it's all about a character named Raul Duke, who's basically a Thompson surrogate. Uh, he and his lawyer, Dr. Gonzo, going to Las Vegas and doing a whole lot of drugs <laughs> and just being insane. And then Terry Gilliam, director of Brazil and uh, a number of other things. Why am I not thinking of any others? <laughs> uh, the Brothers Grimm. The bro- That's a weird <laughs> one to jump to. Imaginarium, Dr. Parnassus, Time Bandits. 12 Monkeys. That's a big one. 12 Monkeys. Yeah, there you go. I feel like I'm missing a big one and it's bothering me now. A big Terry Gilliam one? Yeah. Brazil is the biggest, I think, right? Yeah. I don't know. This is bothering Brazil, me. Brazil, 12 Monkeys, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Hmm. Oh, well, it'll come to me later. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, he's a filmmaker with a very strong visual style uh, and yeah. is willing to go wherever the content requires him to go and then he will step it up several notches uh and so fear and loathing las vegas you watch it i i i own it on blu-ray i got it for christmas because what better christmas gift than that (laughs) uh and so uh in preparation for this episode i threw it in the old blu-ray player last night at about you know 3 a.m that sounds good oh good and uh, started watching it and it took all i you know what it took a lot of energy to stop watching it and go to bed because once you start you can't really you know, buy the ticket, take the ride. That's what Hunter S. Thompson <laughs> says. Um, and it's basically, uh, once many years ago, I made the mistake of watching it while doped up on cold medicine. And, uh, that was horrific. I do remember thinking when I saw it, like, well, now I don't ever need to go on drugs. Cause now I know what it's like. <laughs> it feels like that. Yes. Uh, that this is, uh, but the weird thing is about, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is that though it is ostensibly a comedy, it's it's almost a horror film. Like I don't oh, yeah. see, like if this is what drugs is, which I know that there there's all, also you know a great deal you know people enjoy themselves on it. It's like it can't all be this, but if this is if if it's like this at all, oh my gosh! Like why do people do this? Yeah, it's but you know it's I, I recognize I may sound a little naive and that kind of thing, but yeah. you know. I can't, you know, I can't think of a better anti-drug PSA than to watch Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. <laughs> like Jack Webb wish, wishes he had that. Um, but yeah, and so, uh, so it's a film that just, I remember at the time it, it bowled me over. Uh, and I, like so many others, because uh, I was 16, which is like the perfect age in which to become interested in Hunter S. Thompson. And then you turn maybe 20 and you're like, okay, I got it. Um, and so I read fear and loathing, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. I read, I watched a lot of interviews with him. He was a very interesting guy and he, at his best 
was a surprisingly eloquent and and brilliant writer. Uh, I don't know if you've read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I would recommend it if you haven't. Uh, it's a it's a very good book. Um, but what's interesting is that you know uh, there there's a number of reasons that I chose this as the companion film. Not the least of which is that much like. Jordan Belfort and Donnie Azoff played by Jonah Hill in Wolf of Wall Street. You have Raul Duke and Dr. Gonzo. Like it's two guys, um, engaging in all kinds of crazy behavior that's drug related. And all of these people are successful. All of these people are doing well. You know, Jordan and Donnie are multimillionaires They've had, you know, they've broken the law several times, but like they're multimillionaires. They are successful drugs and these choices and excess has not necessarily ruined their lives. They're not in jail or anything like that. Uh, and in the same way, Raul Duke and Dr. Gonzo, Raul Duke is a successful, well-known journalist. Dr. Gonzo is a respected lawyer. Like these are respectable people for all intents and purposes, their lives are not on the surface are not ruined by their behavior. But if you watch these movies, you will see that yes, their lives aren't necessarily ruined, but look at who they've become. Look at who they are. Mm -hmm. It's worth knowing that both worth noting that both the book of fear and loathing in Las Vegas and the film, they start with a quote by Dr. Johnson he who makes a beast of himself gets rid of the pain of being a man. Like this acknowledges that these guys are, I believe I used the term earlier, monsters. Hmm. They act in a monstrous way. And that's and so in Wolf of Wall Street, you have the scene that we've talked about, the uh the gut punch scene where he punches his wife. Fear and loathing in Las Vegas, there's the uh there's the diner scene. Everything up until then has been just like on acid. It's been swirling and weird, like crazy lighting, Dutch angles, like you just can't get a hold on anything. Mm -hmm. Then there comes the scene when Duke and Dr. Gonzo, they go to a small diner on the outskirts of Las Vegas. They're away from the glitz and glamour and they're just where the locals are. And Ellen Barkin plays this waitress who's you know she's in her like late 30s if not if not actually like middle-aged you know clearly life has not necessarily gone the way she wants it she wanted it to she's just she's just working she's just a regular person and then dr gonzo uh decides that she has uh copped an attitude that he doesn't like so he's got his knife and he he doesn't hurt her, but he gets real close. He threatens her. He demeans her. And it is, it is shot with clear, with, with, you know, clarity. It's shot the way that other scene is shot. There is no bells and whistles. There's no style. It's just watching these men be so ugly and horrible. And it's like, and while fear and loathing in Las Vegas is ostensibly a comedy, like that scene comes like a punch in the face and you realize, Oh, this is what we're dealing with here. Yeah. 
Um, Suddenly it hits home a little bit. Like you, you, yeah. you were living in their world for so long that that scene comes to remind you that they still, ex- they're, they're living within the real world and this yeah. is what that looks like. Yeah. And I mean, there are scenes where Gonzo threatens Duke with his big knife and stuff like that. And it's just, you know, it's, there, there's always an element of, of danger to their circumstances and the danger comes only because they are on these drugs. Were they not, they'd both be fine, mm-hmm. you know? And so, uh, and I, and that's what I felt from certain, certain scenes in the Wolf of Wall Street where like there's a scene where Donnie is confronting a guy that is dangerous and has a gun <laughs> And is and and has said he does not like Donnie, <laughs> and Donnie just keeps provoking him and keeps pushing him, keeps pushing him, and the scene just goes on. And this guy keeps threatening and saying like, "You need to leave me alone." Donnie cannot stop himself, mm-hmm. even though he could get hurt if not killed. Mm-hmm. He cannot stop himself in the same way that you know that Jordan literally has gotten to a point where he can't stop himself from from stealing, you know, stealing his daughter away. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, and the lives that these characters live are excessive lives. They deny themselves literally nothing. Mm-hmm. And that is what we are talking about today from a thematic standpoint, because the Bible certainly has plenty to say about excess. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I know that I recognize that uh, there, there are a lot of non-Christians that listen to this, and there are there are some things that we talk about that people like and enjoy, uh, and it's like, oh, that sounds good. That's but like once anytime you get into like, well, the Bible says not to do this, uh, then we run the risk. That of, doesn't seem like so much fun, does it? Yeah, and so. Um, and, and, you know, we're talking about movies that deal a great deal with, you know, a, a lot with drugs, which, mm. you know, I've never even been drunk. I've never smoked weed or anything like that um, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is I I don't want to find out what I would be like if I was drunk or, <laughs> or any of that. Um, so I'm just uh, trying to play it safe. Um, but uh, But, yeah, like people are usually very vocal when somebody like myself talks about drugs and it's like i'm i'm basing this purely on the wolf of wall street and fear and loathing in las vegas i'm accepting the movies for what they are and what they are is showing guys behaving in a certain way that is horrendous so okay so we've got a lot of stuff to talk about i will quote hunter s hunter s thompson He says, the edge, there is no honest way to explain it because the only people who really know where it is are the ones who have gone over. Uh, Thompson is a, is a fascinating guy because he really seemed to like try to live life on the edge. Uh, he tried, he didn't seem to like really deny himself a lot. Um, and when you read his right, and he did seem to be like, he was a funny guy. He was a charming guy. He was very eccentric and he seemed kind of easily amused by things. But if you read his writings, he seems so desperately unhappy. 
And it is worth noting, and this is where, you know, the, the film where, where there's a blurred line between talking about the film and talking about the real guy. Uh, it's worth noting that Hunter S Thompson eventually wound up killing himself at the age of 67 in 2005. Um, and some people would say that some people said that like just he was such a sensitive soul that like the his frustration with like the political climate of of the of the bush years would just really got to him and that kind of and he just couldn't take it anymore and he was just so frustrated by things and it's just like i guess so but like i don't know i i'm fascinated to know like wh- what were his coping mechanisms like yeah but that's the thing is i don't want to i don't want to hypothesize about it's hard to say yeah but um but what i will say is so hunter s thompson wound up killing himself uh the character that inspired dr gonzo from fear and loathing his name is was uh, oscar zeta zeta acosta uh he was a uh lawyer who was very interested in politics and uh, civil rights and that sort of thing um considered to be fairly heroic um but also got in a lot of trouble and was kind of a kind of crazy uh he disappeared in in the 70s he dis- he went to mexico no one ever saw him again ever and i apologize if i sound glib when i say that kind of thing but you know <laughs> these guys lived on the edge and their lives reflected that and so one thing that i feel like you and i have talked about is that Yes, I recognize that if you are looking at like how the Bible says you should live, I recognize that some could view that as limiting. Um, but there is a certain – and aside from just you know God said it and that sort of thing, just from a practical standpoint, I have had the thought of – and I've had the conversation with people in the past like what would you lose – from a practical standpoint, what do what do you lose if you live your life the way the Bible tells you to live it? Now, some would say you lose experiences. You lose the experiences of doing acid. You lose the experiences of you know sexual promiscuity and, and that kind of thing. And indeed, those are experiences. But what do you get instead? And... So I'll throw out a couple of verses real quick. First uh, Peter four three, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Well, that sounds like the life of Jordan Belfort right there. <laughs> um, and it's just, uh, and the thing is this: like I, I'm worried that that I'm about to overstep my bounds from like a an analytical and psychological standpoint. Like I recognize that there are people that do drugs and it doesn't overtake their lives. I recognize that there are people that drink and maybe even occasionally get drunk and it doesn't ruin their lives. Like I'm not saying that that always happens, you know? Um, but what I am, but what I'm talking about primarily is excess, just doing everything you can because why not? Mm. Um, and certainly the Bible is against that. Um, but it's worth noting. I have a quote here by our old friend, Friedrich Nietzsche, (laughs) in which he says, the mother of excess is not joy, but joylessness. 
And when you read, when you actually read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, you do get the sense, and people, and when I mentioned earlier that uh, people talked about how frustrated Thompson was by his circumstances, he seemed to do these things first recreationally, but then he seemed to do it because he looked around him and was just so sad or angry or frustrated. Mm-hmm. And yes, some would say that those were, that was a function of the circumstances, but also because of who he was, the choices he made, and maybe one could say a lack of joy in his life, he could not deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so maybe the same thing that drove him to do all the drugs in the first place is the same thing that drove him to suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, it's odd that we've zeroed in on the drugs mm-hmm. here because it could be almost anything, really. Yeah, anything that is sort of a... I don't know, that people go to as kind of a solace almost, Mm -hmm. which is weird to think of it that way. You don't think of of the characters from Wolf of Wall Street being people that need a solace. Right. seems like they can have anything they want. Why would you need that? And yet they do somehow. They need, like it isn't enough to, it isn't enough to have more money than you could ever want and be comfortable there. They still need more somehow. Yeah. And, uh, I think probably with Hunter S. Thompson and maybe less obviously with Wall Street characters is there's there's a sense that there is something wrong in the world and there's there's an inherent difficulty in dealing with that. Yeah. And I feel like that's what leads to a lot of that kind of behavior today in people is is uh if you're you know if you're drunk you're not thinking about it doesn't give you the time to think about your problems so much you know people use drink often to escape from their yeah from their problems um and this goes back to the quote from the beginning of fear and loathing in las vegas he who makes a beast of himself gets rid of the pain of being a man like to be a man is to look at your surroundings, look at your own life, look at who you are, and to recognize it's not all great. And that hurts. That acknowledgement hurts. Yeah. And so, but if you lash out and if you, dis- or if you just distract yourself or you try to escape or become something other than a man, then you don't have to feel that pain so much. Yeah. Or maybe one can make the argument, not that I, not that I think these movies do, but it's like, well, now I'm the one inflicting the pain. So now I, and in doing so, I'm not the one feeling it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's one option. That this, you have this other quote here from, uh, from John Piper, mm-hmm. which I think speaks to that as well. Um, did you want to read that one? Go ahead. Um, it says America is the first culture in jeopardy of amusing itself to death. Um, that's speaking about America specifically, but I think it's talking about America in terms of this kind of excess yeah um and kind in terms of a lifestyle of of uh i guess escapist yeah uh excess yeah and that put me in mind of i I was mentioning you beforehand that put me a little bit in mind of the book brave new world for any anyone who's familiar with that is um centered around a future culture where among other things uh everybody 
takes a lot of drugs. It's become a normal thing um, that people to the point that people take them instead of just dealing with things. It's more, it's more of a direct, um, I guess it's not so much a metaphor, but kind of a direct, uh, imagery in that characters are faced with a problem. They just take this drug and it, they literally, they call it a vacation Hmm. and they're just gone for, for a long time. And, um, I found a, a quote from there where, um, for those of you who haven't read the book, there's a character who, uh, is has been living sort of outside of civilization, and when he's brought in, he's kind of our uh, our entrance point, to, our entry point to the to the world, and so we are kind of seeing it the way he sees it, and the way he's shocked with everything. They call him the Savage, which is hmm. uh, telling. But um, found a quote here where it says the Savage nodded, frowning. You got rid of them. Yes, that's just like you getting rid of everything unpleasant instead of learning to put up with it. Whether it is better in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows or of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. But you don't do either. Neither suffer nor oppose. You just abolish the slings and arrows. It's too easy. That made me think of that. Same sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in both in both cases of Wolf of Wall Street and this, like, I mean, what is Jordan Belfort's life? Like, what does it actually look like? I mean, yes, he has a wife and daughter. Uh, he barely interacts with his daughter. Mm-hmm. And then his wife is who he comes home to at the end of the day, unless, of course, he's out having sex with a prostitute or right. something like that. Uh, like, that's his life. And it's worth noting that we don't get to see a lot of it. Yeah. His, his life is spent doing things that aren't that aren't living as strange as that may sound. Yeah. And he even tells, he tells us early in the film that he can't get through the day without doing all of these, these yeah. drugs, like certain drugs to wake him up in the morning, certain drugs in the middle of the day to keep him going. Uh, things like even sleeping pills at night. So he's, he's saying that even, even in just his regular routine of the day, he requires all of these, these substances. Yeah. And just, and at the beginning of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, they list all the drugs that they're bringing with them. And then he's quick to saying, not that we need, he was quick to say, not that we needed all that for the trip, but when you get locked into a serious drug collection, uh, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. Um, and yeah, it's just, you know, not everything is, it's like you may not, it may not be necessary, but they'll do it anyway because they, they may feel like they have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in the case of Jordan Belfort, he even views it as necessary to get through the day. Um, these are not people that are actually engaged with life. I mean, you know, uh, Thompson or uh, sorry, uh, Raul Duke in the, in the movie. I mean, he, <laughs> he goes to Las Vegas to cover a race, uh, like a, a moto motocross kind of race. And, uh, he doesn't pay attention to it. He gets, he gets really high and gets distracted by other things and then realizes, Oh, he has no article to write. He doesn't know who won. And just like, that's like, e- that's the most basic thing is that's why you're here. <laughs> that's all you had to do. That's all you had to do is watch and then write something. And he couldn't <laughs> even do that. Like he couldn't even engage yeah. with life on that basic level. Right. With the life that he ostensibly wants. Yeah. Like that's his career. He, and it's not, you know, journalism is not a career that people, 
end up having to be in because they couldn't find anything else yeah. to do. Like journalism is usually something that is pursued yeah. and, and you're lucky to get into it. And I'm sure that was the case for him. Yeah. Nobody says, Oh, my fallback is journalism. Right. <laughs> you know, no one says that. Um, but yeah. And so, so that's, you know, and, and everybody has an escape of some kind and I'm, I understand the, the idea of taking a break from things. Life can get very stressful. It can get overwhelming. It can be heartbreaking at times. It can be frustrating at times. Um, and I understand having to just take a time out. I mean, the, you know, God even says to allow yeah. one day to just remove yourself from such things. He calls yeah. it the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. I believe I've also posted a, a sermon by uh, Rankin Wilborn about uh, the importance of the Sabbath, mm. uh, which, by the way, I very seldom uh, observe my uh, <laughs> on my own, and that's something I need to remember to do. Um, so, like, even God acknowledges you got to take a break sometimes. Yeah. Um, but your whole life can't be a break. Like you have to. Right. Then, then there's no break. <laughs> right. Yeah. Then the break is those few times when you have to work. Yeah. Uh, but that's, and then you would view, you know, you could view that as like, Oh, this is terrible. Um, these five hours a day I have to work. Um, so, and that's the thing is oddly enough, you and I were talking, uh, uh, off mic without getting into any details. Uh, there are some people out there, including me sometimes like, instinctively there are some there are people who say like oh i wish i never had to work i wish i didn't like who seem to want to eradicate any kind of problem and just do what you want to do all the time forever Mm -hmm. and while i understand that like certainly we would like to get paid to do what we to do the type of work we want to do so that it doesn't seem quite like work it's just like there are people that feel like they're entitled to that kind of thing and and all that and so um and I would say more and more, certainly in the, in the United States, um, you know, the emphasis seems to be on do whatever you can to do as little as you can. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know, all this seems to be like wrapped up into, I guess, a certain degree of selfishness and just doing what you want. And if things aren't going your way to get away from them in some way or to manipulate them, so that you get what you want all the time. Yeah. It's a, it's a refusal to engage with life when life becomes difficult. Yes. And yes. um the, Jesus Jesus says and, and and the Bible says that there's a lot of good in suffering even though suffering is obviously not a positive experience. Yeah. Otherwise it wouldn't be suffering. Um but we are meant to experience suffering. It's it uh it's part of the way that our world is. That's part of the way that we experience this fallen world. And it's important that we do experience it. And, and in, you can almost say that in avoiding it, there's kind of a stunted growth. And one could say that in avoiding it, you may wind up causing more suffering. Like in trying to avoid it, for yourself, you may cause it in others. Yeah. I mean, it could, in the sense that it could be Jordan Belfort, like just, you know, and there, he doesn't really say much about avoiding the stresses of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is something that's driving him. Mm-hmm. And the more he lets himself be driven by that, the more he hurts those around him. And then certainly Thompson, 
uh, eventually in an, in an attempt to avoid the pain of living opted out of living and mm-hmm. probably, you know, at the very least disappointed, but also just really saddened those that loved him. You know, yeah. I've, I'm so, as, as I've said on the show before, like I've been a number of suicides in my family and it's, you know, it's horrible. Like when you, when you, because you, those people are left thinking, what could we have done? Surely there was something we could have done. Mm-hmm. And that's something you're putting on them now. And that's why when people say suicide is a selfish act, I mean, I understand if some, like you do have to be in a very specific type of mindset, I think to say, I believe an old youth pastor of mine put it this way. It's like, I don't know what's after this life, but I know I don't want to be here anymore. Like you have to be to a certain level of despair that, so I don't mean to say that like, it's like, Oh, suicide is, is a selfish act. That guy's just a selfish guy. Like it is that, but also there's some real torment there. But that doesn't necessarily, so I do understand it's a sad thing, but, um, but we can't take away from the fact that yes, you're at, like, you've gotten away from it, but you have left the people that love you with a lot of emotional mess to deal with. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like almost any time we try to escape in an extreme way, it will have an adverse effect on the people around us. Yeah. Um, and that's an interesting comparison that puts me in mind of, because speaking again of, of the Jordan Belfort character, he, uh, when he's addicted to drugs, we see how that affects that he, the way he acts towards his family and the way that directly hurts his family. Mm -hmm. And the same way when he's addicted to money, uh, we don't see it directly, but his addiction to money fuels the way that he hurts those people that he's cheating, essentially, the, the yeah. uh, investors that he's cheating yeah. because he has to get more money. And so he'll do anything he can to get it. So if that means cheating people and p- potentially ruining people's lives, he'll yeah. do it. Yeah. And it's just this. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. We've really hit on something that I wasn't expecting, which is the notion of escape. Hmm and taking a break but then or disengaging i think is the best way to phrase it the, yeah. disengaging but then taking that to an extreme yeah you know I, that i think that's where we wind up with this quote from from nietzsche who is not somebody that i tend to quote very often yeah uh the mother of excess is not joy but joylessness like you disengage because you are feeling no joy with the thing that you're dealing with mm-hmm. and so if you want to you know, if you, I feel like if you do almost anything to excess, it's because it's the one thing that maybe provides you a certain degree of comfort or whatever. And you just like, okay, I'll just do this as much as I can. Um, it's like, yeah. that is not the attitude of somebody engaging with the thing that isn't that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so there's a number, number of, uh, Bible verses here, but I don't think I'm going to read all of them. Uh, what I think I will say is, uh, we'll go with Romans 12 too. Uh, which I know I've read before, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, you know, we've been talking about disengagement, doing, you know, uh, making a priority of doing whatever you want and, and acting as though, 
since the world has not gone the way you want it to, like you are now justified in treating people a certain way or just removing yourself completely. Um, that is, I think the, the direction we're going and maybe we're always, and I mean, that basically boils down to selfishness and self-centeredness. And so that's not necessarily a new concept, Mm -hmm. uh, but that's the world. And so like, we are not to conform to this world. We are supposed to be transformed and the nature of who Jesus was, it was constant sacrifice. It was constant, like putting other people first and, you know, you know what? And what's interesting is even he, wanted a certain degree of escape from the thing he had to do. Yeah. Um, but he was not allowed that. And so, you know, compared to what so many other people do in order to escape from things, whether it be like somebody who leaves his family because he feels like he can't deal with the responsibility of it or somebody who kills himself or what, or somebody who just does a lot of drugs or gets mired in, you know, sexual addiction or whatever, all these things that we use to escape, uh, our responsibilities or, or obligations or whatever. Um, you know, Jesus, when faced with what he had to do, he did it. And we are, you know, and he literally got, practically nothing out of it, you know? And so hopefully when you think about that, it can, it can inspire you to see what is worship worthy or praiseworthy about Jesus. When we see how different his instinct was compared to the rest of the world. Um, so I think I will breeze through. I think I will read all of these and I'll breeze through them. Um, Titus one verses seven through nine for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in some, in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So if you are a Christian and you're listening to this, you know, obviously, you know, I'm not even going to say obviously. We all have our struggles. Maybe you struggle with, you know, drunkenness or, you know, even drugs or whatever. Who knows? Um what I will say is that, you know, obviously the Bible speaks against that for a number of reasons. Like one is that we need to be ready at the, at any point to give an account, not just of ourselves, but of God's love and that sort of thing. And so if we are constantly trying to sort of, you know, amuse ourselves and pacify ourselves, then we're not going to be focused on the task at hand. So I will then move on to Proverbs 3, verses 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length uh, for length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to say is that, you know, we're talking about escape and excess and something that I think is inherent to human nature. We all, we all have these instincts. Uh, and the Bible says we need to try to uh, get past them, but 
we often make mistakes uh, and we often sin and that sort of thing. Um, and it's very easy when talking about, as we have been, you know, what the Bible says not to do. It's very easy to get discouraged when you actually do those things. Uh, and so there's an extended passage here that since I've been doing so much reading, I'm just going to throw it to Josh. Josh, I typed this really quickly. There might be a typo or two. <laughs> we'll uh, find out. So we'll find out. All right, here we go. This is First John 1, First John 1, 5 through 2, 3. Okay. This is the message we have heard from him and pro- proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we talk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right. So I wanted to end with something kind of encouraging, <laughs> as opposed to don't do this, don't do this. But it's just like we're going to make mistakes, and we're and sometimes we're going to get – you know, I know that I – in my in my own way, I tend to I will sometimes disengage from things. Uh, you know, I don't go and get drunk. I don't go and like sleep around or anything like this. But I, there are things that I that I do personally to remove myself from uh, trouble or frustration or whatever. Yeah. Uh, my wife would be the first person to tell you that if if an argument is looming. <laughs> uh, You're ready to do anything to get out of the house. (laughs) Well, it's sometimes, you know what? Sometimes literally, yes. Mm. And that is not helpful to anybody and winds up hurting her because literally I'm communicating that I would rather not be in the room with her than have a difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. So that has happened not very often, but it's happened once or twice. Um, Yeah. But I will often shut down and just remove myself mentally from what's happening. And that also is hurtful to somebody else because I don't want to deal with this. And, you know, since we're talking about excess, like that is something that there are seasons when that is what I do almost for days at a time. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, that's what I do to escape. It's almost all abstract and mental, but that's what I do. Yeah. It's not, I mean, that's, I think something we have to stress. We're not saying anybody who wants to escape is, you know, is terrible is a terrible person. And you know, that's the reason they do these wrong things because they want to escape instead of deal with their problems. And, right. uh, it's, it's not an insensible desire. Like they're, there are a lot of things that can be very difficult in life. A lot of things that can be much more difficult than the things that we've had to experience. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of things in life are hard and escape yeah. is, is a natural desire. But, uh, uh, I guess what this, one of the things that the, the verse is saying here, actually, I should look back at it to make sure it's actually saying that. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know that it's in that verse necessarily, okay. but uh, basically that uh, 
we we have a desire to escape, but there are there are more hopeful things in in uh, in what Jesus has to offer. There is um, growth to be gained from suffering, although it's difficult. And um, what it does say in this verse is when we give in, when we do withdraw or try to escape, whether it be the things that you were talking about or whether it be, you know, the uh, the list of things from the other verse, uh, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, passion, sensuality. Um, even when we do retreat to those things, uh, we still have, uh, can you use the, the words from the quote here? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus yeah. Christ the righteous. And you know, and I will, I'll, I'll end with this. Um, those times when we desire to escape and we maybe do it in the wrong way or we do it for too long or whatever, uh, regardless of what that is, and we and we stray into the into the the, the realm of sin. Uh, in some cases, it's it takes a while for us to get to that point. In some cases, immediately, like it's like oh, the very I have turned immediately to sin to escape from mm. from uh, my my troubles. Um, it's worth noting that the reason that we don't have to worry certainly if we do that, like we should, you know ask for forgiveness and try to repent and that kind of thing. But like the reason we don't have to worry or fret over the fact that we've done that is because to reference what I said earlier is because Jesus did not do that. Jesus did not escape. He took, he took more responsibility than he was due Mm -hmm. on his shoulders. And that is what makes it okay for us to make mistakes Mm. and the fact that it is okay for us to make mistakes that in itself should hopefully enable us to get through life a little easier you know if this were a situation where i mean if if this were a belief system where it was all about what are you able to do are you able to achieve perfection on a daily basis like and it was only about that and there was no grace then yeah there'd be a lot of nervous breakdowns out there because it would be, it would just be so exhausting and life would actually become harder. You know, it turns into this vicious circle. Yeah. Life would become harder because it would be harder to be perfect precisely because someone wants you, God wants you to be perfect mm-hmm. and expects you to be. Um, we have the freedom to not be perfect in an imperfect world precisely because Jesus was perfect. And hopefully that gives you a certain degree of solace. And the next time you feel like disengaging in whatever manner you choose to, again, an occasional escape is, a, is understandable, encouraged even, um, but disengagement is a different thing. And so the next time you feel like that, just recognize that like Jesus love and God's strength can help you get through whatever it is you're, you need to get through as hard as it is. And I understand there's some hard stuff out there that seems overwhelming and maybe it even is overwhelming, but in that moment you can go to God and he can give you strength and comfort. And anyway, I think that's where I will leave it. Do you have anything else to throw no. in there? I okay. wraps it up pretty good. All right. So we'll leave it there. Uh, we've been going for a while, so I'm just going to go ahead and wrap up. You can go to more than one lesson.com. There's some, uh, not a lot of new content. There's a new, uh, I posted a sermon 
on there uh, about uh, envy and uh, the commandment, do not covet. Uh, it's very interesting. So, um, so yeah, you can go on there. You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. You can follow Josh at the Josh long at the Josh long. You can email me Tyler at more than one lesson.com or Josh, Josh at more than one lesson.com. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or others, uh, if you wanted to like open a dialogue with, uh, us or with other, uh, listeners, you can always comment on the page, uh, or on the post, uh, for this episode at more than one lesson.com. So I think that is about it. Uh, Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And thank you guys for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye.